1: Tortoise. Hello
0: and welcome to Trendy from Tortoise. I'm John Curtis.
1: And I'm Rachel Wolf.
0: Together we're trying to make sense of what's going on in Britain by looking at some of the long-term trends and data. Now I'm in my day job for what it's worth, I'm Professor of Politics at the University of Strathclyde in Glasgow. Um, But I spend a lot of time keeping a close watch on the opinion polls.
1: I run Public First, a policy and research consultancy in Westminster. And for my sins, I've just come back from Manchester for the Tory party conference.
0: So did you have a nice time, Rachel?
1: Uh, Yeah, I had enough alcohol to convince me I was having enough nice time for some of it. It's... I've not been going to conference long by your standards, John, but I started going in 2007. So I've only ever been at Conservative Party conferences when they were either expected to go into government or in government and plausibly expected to keep power. And this is definitely the first conference where it felt a lot of people were just counting down the days till they could go to Liverpool. At Liverpool being where Labour are going to hold their conference. What did you think? Well, I was
0: just there briefly for a day to talk at a fringe meeting. To talk at a fringe meeting, um, I was struck that the, the a lot of the agenda appeared to be about what is the future direction of this party. And I went to one of those meetings, which essentially uh, was done by the Centre for Policy Studies, which is a particularly uh, right-of-centre think tank on the economy. And they were railing against the expansion of the state that's occurred in the last three or four years, which the uh, Institute for Fiscal Studies recently pointed out, up to record levels. Um, but also, were deeply concerned about the attempt to focus on the culture wars because these folk, what, well, not only economic liberals but also social liberals. So, I mean, I think you know it's pretty clear there are two arguments going on inside the party. One is. Should it indeed be as interventionist as it has been the last three, four years? Should it try to roll back the stake? Liz Truss's agenda. But equally also, should it be trying to pursue an anti-woke, socially conservative agenda? Or should it be libertarian, uh, which I guess was the agenda being uh, debated about by Suella Braverman. So you just got this sense of a party that isn't where it, it's comfortable and isn't quite sure to know how to get out of it.
1: Yeah, one of the things I find fascinating over the last year or so particularly is how much conservative politicians, even those in the cabinet, speak as though they're in opposition. They rail against the institutions of the state culturally or the size of the state as if they, they didn't have the levers of power. And I think that is still the case. I
0: wondered in the wake of Mr Sunak's speech, that's what's really going on here is that Mr. Sunak has noted that the Labour Party seems to be relatively policy-light, seems to be relatively reluctant to make too much in the way of commitments, and that therefore by himself making a number of commitments, which are striking, although we might want to argue about their coherence, he's kind of saying to voters, well, actually, if you want somebody who's got some idea of what they might want to do in government, maybe you should be looking at us again i don't know whether that's right or not but it's uh, it's interesting that uh, there is perhaps another challenge to labor here which is can they continue to be so light on policy against a prime minister who now seems to be quite happy to talk about policy? A
1: lot of the people that I met, certainly the companies when I was at conference, were visibly waiting for Liverpool more than they were interested in what was happening in Manchester. Eyes are on them. And so I thought it would be interesting to look at how opposition parties positioned themselves in the year before the election? What did they say at a conference? How were they doing? And and how much is this complaint of being too policy light and not saying enough a, f- a reasonably familiar one? And I, I think it is reasonably familiar. They, Cameron was accused of this. Blair was accused of this because you want the government to blow itself up.
0: Indeed, and of course, it's been, there's plenty of reason to believe that certainly so far as this government's concerned, it's been rather good at blowing itself up. But that said, you know, there are both some striking dissimilarities between the position in which Labour finds itself now, ahead as it is in the polls, and the position that it found itself in before 1997. Um, and it's also very striking the extent to which, even below the levels of voting intention, Labour's progress seems very closely tied to Let's Let's just take the first of those. So... Tony Blair, uh, according to the opinion polls, clearly had more people who were satisfied with the job he was doing before 1997 than were dissatisfied with him. The same was true of David Cameron a year out before the 2010 election. But if you look at Zakir Starmer's ratings, most recent uh, data suggests he's about got about 14% more people dissatisfied with the job he's doing than saying he's satisfied. And indeed, it's been quite noticeable that his levels of satisfaction have been falling during the course of this year. And that uh, indeed also, I mean, the two occasions when Sikir Starmer's satisfaction levels improved, well, one was in the immediate wake of Partygate and two was in the immediate wake of Liz Truss. And that outside of those periods, you've got this sense of a balloon so far as evaluations of Sikir Starmer is concerned that just gradually loses air until it's given another stimulus by the government. Now, in a sense, you can say, therefore, the crucial thing is that the government messes up, and for as long as the government messes up, then um, none of this matters. But it does raise questions about how firm is the commitment of the electorate to the Labour Party? Is it essentially an electorate that is turned to Labour because, yes, it's no longer thought to be extreme the way it was thought under Jeremy Corbyn, And to that extent seems to be safe, but isn't necessarily a party that uh, generates enthusiasm, generates a clear indication of what it's about, and therefore perhaps could be won back if, and it's a big if, the Conservatives could overcome their difficulties.
1: I mean, there's there's a slightly strange phenomenon, it seems to me, that Both parties have now decided to try and be the change candidate at the next election. Obviously, Labour has to be the change candidate at the next election. But but instead of doing what you'd normally expect around about now for a Conservative administration, which is we started the job, trust us to finish it, we're on the right path. Sunak is trying to be, I'm a fundamentally different person, despite having been Chancellor. But for Starmer, I think what is challenging is he is saying, Britain is totally broken, you feel poorer, nothing is working, which is absolutely true and, and as flat as everyone says, but it's not completely clear what he's going to do to fix it. And and is that the problem, John, or, or are we overdoing the importance of him coming out with clarity in winning people over?
0: Well, I mean, the, the point is that... Um, what Sakir Starmer hasn't done, and you know, frankly, what Rishi Sunak I think is still struggling to do, even after his conference speech, is to give people a sense or a vision as to how Britain might change. Now, I mean, in the case of Blair, in a sense, it was very much a negative message, but it was things can only get better, right? But around that, then there was also this sense of, you know, we're going to modernise Britain, we're going to take it into, uh, make it uh, able to equip and compete in the globalized world that emerged over the previous two decades of uh, conservative rule. And there there were echoes there, frankly, of Howard Wilson, again, the white heat of technology. Again, there was a sense of the the government is out of date, it's out of touch, we are going to do things differently. And what you don't have as yet from Labour, I think, is or the public are not getting a sense from Labour of, okay, yes, we've got some sense of, how it's going to make the country better? I mean, I mean, there is no doubt. I mean, the the country is still very deeply uh, economically uh, uh, lacking in confidence. Uh, people are, are are suffering from the so-called cost of living crisis. Um, they are worried about the state of the health service. All of this is true, um, and to that extent, at least, therefore, all of the politicians have have to some sense to distance themselves from the past and to say how things things will improve. But I guess the problem—the problem I, I guess—labor, the, the risk that labor are taking is this. Sure, by not saying too much, they avoid offending people. But the risk that you take in not being clearer is that if your opponents do begin to come up with a more popular appeal, if they do manage to, to turn things around, then perhaps people are biddable because they are not—they're not, essentially voting for you because they're unhappy with the government. But if the government starts to speak in tones that more effectively addresses the concerns uh, that they have than the opposition seem to be doing, to, they may be doing so. Now, of course, this is not easy for the Conservatives. Um, a lot of it's been done in code. Um, it's been, you know, we're now getting phrases like, well, and it's been a bit chaotic in the last few years. Well, yes, indeed, uh, we've had a rather chaotic government. We, we, we need to emphasize honesty and integrity. I think that's allusion to at least um, a, a prime minister minus one and that this is going to be a different style. So it's a difficult trick, but you can see them trying. And the question is, will Labour be able to do enough to stop erosion? Because, again, it's worth it's worth remembering. I mean, at 44, I mean, you know, Labour still have a 17 point leave. But the lead is now as low as it has been at any point since Liz Truss vacated office. So, uh, you know, the popularity of Sir you Starmer know, has been in decline during the course of this year. There is the the, the the sense that the Labour Party are ready for government. That's still a minority point of view, according to the polling. So you put all of this together, you, ju- you just feel there is a sense in which potentially at least this is bitter. I think also, I mean, one other thing to bear in mind about all of this is that, you know, one of the things that Labour was wanting to do uh, after 2019, and part of its own diagnosis of why it was where it was at, is that it was too dependent on Remain voters and too dependent on middle-class voters. But actually, once you look at the data, it's not changed either of these things. We're still looking at a party that's very dependent On middle class voters, if anything, its growth and support in the last two or three years has occurred more amongst middle class people than amongst uh, working class people. And its support, so far as Brexit is concerned, it's still around three to one in favour of being inside the European Union in the way that it was back in 2019. So insofar as Labour's own diagnosis two or three years ago was we need to appeal to a certain section of the electorate, the traditional working class electorate. It's not clear it's made much progress on that enterprise either.
1: And it's interesting because if you think about some of the things you'd expect a left-leaning party to do if they were trying to appeal to a working class electorate, which tends to be relatively left-wing economically, it would be, you know, smashing the rich, taxing the big businesses, um, all the kind of classic genuinely popular things that you expect a a sort of on the side of the workers party to say. But they're very nervous about that because at the same time, they're very worried about seeming anything but uh, fiscally responsible and on the side of economic growth. And we talk about trends in this podcast. One of the core Kind of challenges for both parties in different ways is that we seem to be in an era of low economic growth and very high pressures on public spending and a population that doesn't want to pay more tax. And the reason perhaps that there's not a ton of first order policy coming from either party, because HS2 is probably not first order for most people, though people don't generally vote on, on train lines, is because of what feels like this trap and no one has an answer for it. So what would be your advice, John? Like, looking at this past, do you think that in Liverpool they should be bolder on policy, maybe say some some taxes they're going to raise so they can put some more into spending? Uh, or are they actually, even if it's not great for Starmer's approval ratings, are they sensible to be cautious and they should wait either to see where the economy picks up or just keep letting the government hopefully implode further from their point of view?
0: I think... Probably what they need to think about doing at minimum is to come up with two or three things that distinguish them from the Conservatives, um, but which are not necessarily uh, too expensive, but which gives people some, and which symbolically at least gives some people some idea of how this Labour government will be difficult. Now, what those are going to be, that's much more difficult. I mean, I suspect in part, given where the party's already at, I suspect he's going to probably have to accept that there is a dividing line between it and the government on net zero uh, to probably, given that it's now pretty clear, uh, you know, 10 days on from the government's announcement that it's not made much difference to the standing of the Conservatives in in the opinion polls, that probably this is an area where they could afford Uh, uh, to be able to uh, come up with distinctive policies. Now, those distinctive policies might be uh, to say that actually, um, you know, we are going to do things to try to mitigate the cost of transition for people, uh, while at the same time also saying we're going to do more to try to re- regulate business to try and ensure that they are uh, uh, emitting less. And obviously there's still plenty uh, uh, the, the, pl- plenty potentially to do in terms of carbon emissions that uh, uh, could be done there.
1: But this is, of course, this is the nightmare for the advisor. I've been in this position lots of times and Labour people are in the equivalent position, which is before, particularly before conference, what people say is, I would like a policy that is really, really popular and stands for everything we believe in. But could you make it work immediately and be free, please? And we all run around desperately trying to find this, which is why there are so many school discipline announcements uh, at party conferences, because this is a very, very familiar dilemma.
0: Yeah, you can ban ban people's uh, mobile phones from school. Or ban them from smoking. It doesn't cost them too much. Yeah, no, uh, absolutely. In a moment, we'll discuss Scotland and the SNP given the Rutherglen by election. But first, though, a short break.
1: Cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year.
0: Anyway, the Labour Party have, of course, a much more immediate challenge, the result of which some people may know by the time they listen to this podcast, which is that there's a small matter of a by-election north of the border in Rutherglen and Hamilton West, just to uh, the south of Glasgow. And it's a by-election that the Labour Party are very, very strongly favourites to win. Um, any discussion of Rutherglen in the Conservative conference, Rachel?
1: You know what? I don't think most people at Conservative Party conference, I'm ashamed to say, would have the faintest idea where it was. It sounds quite Scottish, so they might make a decent guess at the country. But I didn't hear a single mention of this by-election, which is fascinating because they do know that the fortunes of the SNP to an extent dictate their own fortunes because it determines to an extent whether Labour win a majority.
0: Indeed, and that's one of the reasons why, you know, even if you're not interested in politics in Scotland in particular, why the outcome of this by-election matters. So um, two crucial points. The first and most immediate political reason why this by-election matters, it is actually one of those constituencies, about a half a dozen of them, that Labour under Jeremy Corbyn managed to gain from the Conservative from the SNP in 2017. When again also the SNP weren't doing that well. They only got about 36-37% of the vote. So Sakir Starmer cannot afford to fail to win a constituency that Jeremy Corbyn managed to win uh, back in 2017. That's just the raw internal politics Labour Party. But as you've already alluded to, the second reason why all of this matters is that. Sure, Labour still at the moment average lead in the opinion polls seventeen points on it, on its own. That will be enough to give Labour uh, an overall majority, irrespective of what happens in Scotland. But again, you talked you t- talked earlier about the different the, the the difference with Blair. I mean, the the Labour's lead at the moment is less than it was before nineteen ninety seven, but before nineteen ninety seven. The polls, in fact, overestimated Labour's position. The average position in the final polls was 18-point lead. In the end, it was only between 12 and 13 points. So one of the things that has to be at the back of Labour's mind again is, well, will the polls be overestimating Labour's position? And the second thing we know, which is certainly very, very different from Blair, uh, is that um potentially Starber faces a very adverse electoral geography. Unless the geography of Labour and Conservative support changes, which it might do, then Labour could need as much as a 12-point lead just to get a majority of one. So given all of that... if sorry, Labor sorry, John, can... just
1: explain this to the listeners because they might not be very familiar with And you've mentioned before that um, Labour tend to uh, win with middle-class people and less with working-class people. You've mentioned electoral geography. What, what is the uphill battle for Labour?
0: Okay, so if you simply assume that Conservative support goes down by the same amount in every constituency and Labour support goes up by the same amount in every constituency uh, on the 2019 base, you can then work out what share of the vote across Britain as a whole does Labour need in order to get a majority of one. And the answer to that question is a 12-point lead.
1: And this is why people on the left like PR. I think often mistakenly, well, I, but it's I, one I, of the I, reasons I, why they
0: like PR. Well, <laughs> at the moment, yes. But, but this is not immutable. I mean, the point is that between 1997 and 2005, the electoral system worked very much to Labour's advantage. OK, this is a, the point is the electoral geography changes. But the electoral geography bequeathed by Brexit... Created a position whereby Labour were at a potential disadvantage because the Conservatives, in winning a lot of those red wall seats, were picking up seats with relatively small electorates Some of yep. which, by the way, are going to disappear because, of the, because the boundary reason. changes. That's, right. Because exactly. Which,
1: which again, uh, for p- listeners, is that, that your constituency may have changed since the last election. You might be voting in, in a slightly different area for population reasons, uh, and this has been something that has been. Almost happening and never quite happening for ages, and is now finally happening to reflect that populations have changed in different places.
0: Indeed, and Labour's Labor, Labor's vote is also it, it's too, it's too geographically concentrated in some constituencies. So the Conservatives win more constituencies by a relatively small small majority. So that big then also uh, comes to to be uh, to your advantage now. There's no guarantee that that electoral geography won't change. I mean, I've already, although as I've already said, it's not entirely clear that given that Labour have not necessarily made that much progress amongst Leave voters, that they'll necessarily do particularly well in Leave voting areas. But, but, uh, But even so, at the moment, at least Labour have to be aware that they still might need quite a large lead to get an overall majority. So therefore the more seats they can get in scotland at the expense of the smp the easier it is for them to get the 326 seats they need to get an overall majority and i mean as a rough rule of thumb for every 12 seats that labor can pick up north of the border you can knock a couple of points off the lead that labor are likely to need across the uk as a whole so now yeah None of this helps, makes any difference to the Conservatives, the SNP. I mean, even if we go to a home parliament, it's going to be very difficult for the Conservatives to survive a home parliament. It
1: is implausible that the SNP would back the Conservatives.
0: Or indeed. And the same is true of the Liberal Democrats. But uh, it does, this does all potentially make a difference to Sir Keir Thomas' chance of getting an overall majority. And the truth is... An opposition party—I mean, I mean—all governments, first of all, like majorities, right? It makes life easier.
1: It is very but noticeable the... that Starmer's support for proportional representation dropped like a stone when he thought he might actually get a proper majority, like every yeah. other leader.
0: And this happened in the wake of Labour's victory in the 1997 general election when they won an enormous majority that they never expected. And therefore, they rapidly allowed uh, their commitment to to, uh, having a referendum on the electoral system uh, uh, go into the sand. Of course, it is is always thus. But thinking more widely, clearly the potential nightmare scenario for the Labour Party is to find itself as perhaps as quite a deeply minority government. Trying to deal with a very difficult fiscal situation, but therefore, because it doesn't control the House of Commons, not necessarily even able to get finance acts through unchanged, which was the experience of the 1974 to 1979 Parliament. Meanwhile, uh, you know, uh, facing demands for improving public services and trying to achieve economic growth. This is not a very comfortable scenario. Of course, it was the concern about trying to deal with uh, a different crisis without a majority. That was one of the reasons why David Cameron, despite everything he said during the election campaign, rapidly sued with the Liberal Democrats to come up with a coalition after 2010, because they didn't fancy having to deal with what they feared would be a government bond crisis in the absence of being able to provide a stable government uh, reasonably rapidly. And they they found uh,
1: governing in that situation relatively easily. But this is a a more fractious... Yeah, because, well, but,
0: but, but because the point is that I, there isn't any prospect of Liberal Democrats entering any coalition. There's no prospect of the SNP and Labour doing any kind of deal. So the prospects of there being a coalition are much weaker than they were before 2010. And so therefore, we could potentially as a country be facing a, a quite deeply hung parliament with two minority parties, both of whom are, have, have got potentially big asks so far as um what they would want out of a minority government. The World Democrats want proportional representation. The SNP want another referendum on IndyRef2. These are both really big, big ass. And the Labour Party does not want to be in a position where it might find itself at some point in the future of having to accede to any any of those kind of requests. Now,
1: I, I would love to come back to the Liberal Democrats another episode and actually to to reform and Farage, which is the other kind of party that can upset uh, upset plans fairly easily. But, but for people who don't live in Scotland, one of the things that seems fascinating from a different distance about the SNP is that they have been relatively unassailable for a long time despite satisfaction in core public services the sorts of things that you assume will bring down a government being pretty bad people don't think the education system or the NHS is working particularly well in Scotland but but it's done brilliantly until recently.
0: One of the things that happened during the decade from 2011 through to 2021 so from the Scottish Parliament election that gave Alex Salmond an overall majority that then eventually led to David Cameron acceding to the independence referendum of 2014 through to the 2021 um, election, uh, which Nicola Sturgeon won, but didn't get a majority. So we now have a not quite a coalition with the Greens, but it's uh, it's, for all practical purposes, a a kind of coalition. Uh, Now, what happened during that period is that Scottish politics... Not least because of the polarisation around the question in the wake of the 2014 independence referendum, became much more like politics in Northern Ireland, by which I mean the constitutional question came to dominate how people voted. And by the time we got so back in 2011, why did the SNP win an overall majority? Not because there was some sudden swing in favour of independence, but rather because around 40% of people who at that point in time were opposed to independence voted for the SNP.
1: And one of the very interesting things, again, for those who don't spend their life following Scottish politics in the recent SNP election, was for a party that we probably instinctively thought of as left of centre. Suddenly, had potential leaders who were very Christian leaders who had fundamentally different beliefs. Not that you can't be Christian and left wing, but it sort of wasn't the wasn't the image that most of us had of the SNP. Suddenly, had, it saw how much this party had independence that knitted it together, but didn't agree on quite a lot else.
0: Now, the interesting thing about you know the SNP's more recent difficulties is that that strong relationship has now begun to break down with Labour picking up a bit, not a large chunk of, but picking up the support of some of those who say they still vote for independence because support for independence is still running in the high 40s. That's not fallen in recent months in the way that support uh, for the SNP uh, has. Now, um, sure, one of the things that then emerged uh, during the SNP leadership contest, um, and you know to which you've alluded to, is that, is that um, and it's during that period that support for the SNP starts to fall. It falls by about five points during the leadership contest. Yes, yeah, sure, we discover that the SNP um, is rather more of a broad church than perhaps many people thought of, given it tended to portray itself as a social democratic party. Although it is always, always worth remembering that in fact, if you looked at the detail of what the SNP were promising out of independence in the 2014 independence referendum, yes, yes, it was true. They were talking a lot about a more equal society, but actually the only tax cut they were offering in 2014 was a cut in the rate of taxes on businesses because uh, Alex Salmond at least was very keen on the idea of being able to run a business tax regime that was closer to that closer being to run by Ireland yeah. than and, right, okay. So, 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 the, so, so, there's always been an uh, and, and you know uh, there's always been an element of the of the SNP that's been on the right economically. There's always been an element of the SNP that's been uh, uh, somewhat more socially conservative, although. Inevitably, the zeitgeist of the party, like the zeitgeist of our society as a whole, you know, having become much more socially liberal, particularly on things to do with same-sex relationships. And on that, at least, uh, we know from some of the work that Tim Bale has done on the membership of the SNP, the membership of the SNP are, are actually pretty liberal on this subject.
1: So... Looking at Liverpool then, we've just come out of Manchester. It's hard to say it's been a triumphant conference for the Conservative Party and the government is very, very unpopular. Labour are doing very well in the polls, but Starmer's own approval ratings are unusually negative for this stage. And that maybe makes things slightly woolier in terms of support than you might expect from the headline polls. And for Labour, what happens in Scotland and whether the SP continues to be relatively unpopular compared to a few years ago makes a massive difference to whether they can form a majority and also allows them to avoid two very big questions. We can come back to this another time. Big constitutional questions which could really change how the country operates on the voting system we have we'll come back to the Lib Dems and uh, whether whether we remain unionist and and Rishi Sunak sort of stated in his conference speech that support for the union had increased and and that's not that's not really true. Uh, But before we finish, John, I hope you have a brilliant time in Liverpool. I'm not going to Liverpool, but everyone else in my company has made it clear that it's utterly essential that that they're there because they're desperate to watch what happens. That's it from Trendy for this week. I'm Rachel Wolfe.
0: And I'm John Curtis. Thanks for listening.
1: New episodes are published every Thursday. Do rate and review us. It really helps people find us. And follow the feed so you don't miss an episode. only from rustolium